Hey there, OCD family community, and welcome back to part three of this series about finding unity in diversity. We've been having some important conversations on treatment intersectionality, and today is no different. So join me, fam, because we are welcoming the renowned Dr. Caitlin Pinciotti to our family table, and she's dishing up some justice-based treatment. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent, and let me be the first to say, welcome to the family, the OCD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Has it been a week for y'all? Because it has been a week over here. I mean, we have had some more sickness in our household, but hey, I have dodged the germs so far, and I'm optimistic that the worst is behind us, okay? Uh, let's hope, knock on wood. And thank goodness, because I'm really excited to be with you all today. So that brings me to today's topic of justice-based treatment. Now, I have to say, I actually love this description for justice-based treatment because I believe treatment should always, always be justice-based. And many years ago, when I was a program manager at a community mental health center in the greater Los Angeles area, I recall our agency applying for a trauma-informed care accreditation. Now, we worked a lot of trauma cases, and we had many different funding sources and evidence-based practices to treat these cases. So at first blush, I was like, we are trauma-informed. And it was part of our life's work, so getting approved as a trauma-informed care provider seemed like a natural and easy thing to do. We got this. But as we got into the paperwork and the criteria and the interviews and the systematic and clinical evaluation of our work, it turned out there was a lot more to being a trauma-informed care agency than I thought. We already had the aim and the heart to do it. No question. And we thought we were doing it. But it turned out very subtle, very nuanced language here and there led to some different postures, led to some different management decisions, led to you name it. It all mattered and it still matters. And could we have said, screw it, we know we're doing the work, it's not worth it for some stamp from some regulatory board's approval process because we're already doing the things I suppose we could have. But what we learned in our ability to be vulnerable and risk having our foot in our mouth a time or two was that we needed to do better. And we did. And after a lengthy process, we made it to our goal. Great, so we made our goal, right? Check, done. Not quite, because we needed to also remain accountable and maintain our eligibility and our standing year by year because we needed to continue to do the work to grow and to adapt. So some of our fam listening may be thinking, justice-based treatment, duh, we do that, of course. Why do we have to parse this out and make it into a whole big thing? 
And when we're talking about mental health, the helping profession full of quote-unquote helping professionals, of course, we need to be legal and ethical and just. That is why there are jurisprudence examinations required for licensure, and that is why we have these different governing entities managing license, and that's why we have law and order and why it matters. Protection for our clients, for our communities, and for ourselves. They matter. We all matter. And much like the combing through of my amazing past agency, doing great work, doing the things, we ran into some tangles. Our language, it matters. Our postures, they matter. Our theories and our practices, these things matter. Now, I can't talk about tangles without thinking about my daughter, okay? My sweet five-year-old daughter, she's wild. But even if she has presumably had a very calm, nice, restful sleep, her hair gets so tangled and matted so quickly. And it's not because we don't brush it regularly or wash it or deep condition it like no tomorrow, y'all. Who's with me? But it gets tangled and it's hard. And sometimes it's really painful to work through those tangles. She feels the pain. I feel the pain of her feeling the pain. And I'm inflicting the pain, but I'm just trying to get the tangles out, right? But it's also really important because not addressing the tangles leads to what, y'all? Bigger tangles. Bigger problems. More time. (laughs) And the more time that goes by without breaking down and brushing out those tangles, the worse it gets. So that's treatment intersectionality for me. We may be doing all the things we can to take care, love our neighbor, work through justice-based treatment. Great. Thank you. But if we don't address these tangles, no matter how big or how small, then we can't do our job. We can't get to where we need to be. And we run the risk of little tangles becoming big tangles, becoming even more painful tangles. So today, we're addressing the tangles of theories and practices that have surrounded and impacted the LGBTQIA plus community. And specifically, we're going to focus on the tangles of treatment of sexual orientation OCD and gender-themed OCD. Furthermore, we're going to explore the tangles of minority stress within sexual minorities. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that the LGBTQIA plus communities equal OCD. I'm absolutely not saying that. But I am saying some of the strategies, some of the implementation, some of the treatment is stigmatizing and can further perpetuate stereotypes and harm to the LGBTQIA plus community. So we're going to talk about that today, and I am really glad that you're here to have the conversation with us, too. Now, I want to reiterate something I've echoed before this series launched and throughout different episodes while I've been doing this series. This is not a political conversation. This is a humanity conversation. We were better together. OCD hits across all populations, no matter your skin color, religion, gender, sexual orientation, or neurotype. And while that diversity unifies us, fam, it also divides us, and it has and does discriminate across and within our different communities. So we've talked about ethnic representation and participation in treatment and research, advocacy and policy a little bit, and now we're going to focus on sexual orientation and gender themes when it pops up in OCD, as well as informing and including justice-based approaches 
for the LGBTQIA community. People we love. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's your spouse or your partner. Maybe it's your daughter. Maybe it's your brother. Maybe it's your dad. Black, white, gay, straight, Christian, Muslim, autistic, ADHD, all communities struggle with OCD. So let's not forget why all of these different identifiers that are so core to who we are still has one thing in common. Who we are, we're human, and we're better together. So without further ado, I want to introduce y'all to our distinguished guest today, Dr. Caitlin Pinciotti. Dr. Pinciotti is a licensed clinical psychologist and assistant professor in the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Pinciotti has an expertise in the assessment, conceptualization, and treatment of OCD, trauma, and PTSD, and a secondary interest in identifying and addressing mental health inequities in gender and sexual minorities. She has led the work on justice-based treatment for OCD with sexual orientation and gender themes through publications, trainings, and conference talks. So without further ado, let's get to it, because this conversation is so important. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast, and what a pleasure it is to be joined by our distinguished guest, Dr. Caitlin Pinciotti. She is, she's amazing. Let's just say that. She is doing really awesome and important work. One of the things, one of the projects she's working on right now, which is really exciting and pertinent to today's conversation, is she has helped create the first, one of the first really surveys to help update and inform OCD theories and practices to be more inclusive of unique experiences within the LGBTQIA plus population. And that is long overdue, but also so important. And she's also doing great work with trauma and ERP. And she's just amazing. So thank you so much, Dr. Pinciotti, for being here today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it, too. So we have a lot to discuss. And I got to tell you guys, I just got chit-chatty with Dr. Pinciotti. And I was like, I got to rein it in and get to our conversation because I want all of you all to hear the conversation that we were having. And so this is a treatment intersectionality series. And my goal in the series as a whole is finding unity in diversity by exploring treatment intersectionality, which I realize the word intersectionality can trigger people. I realize that culture, diversity, inclusion, a lot of different words can trigger people in different ways. But I think this is a really important topic for us to discuss with the OCD family community. So just for starters, Dr. Pinciotti, if we could, let's explore what does that look like? What does treatment intersectionality look like when we're talking about the LGBTQIA plus population and just some of the concerns why it's important that we address it. Yeah. I mean, I think to to start, intersectionality, I think, has unfortunately become one of these buzzwords that carries all of this weight. And like you said, can stir up a lot of negative feelings in people. But really, when we're using that word, all we're talking about is the fact that we all have different identities that impacts the way we experience the world and the world experiences us. So we can't really isolate based on 
just race or just sexual orientation or just gender, that at any given time, all of these identities that we have are kind of interacting and, and, and creating nuances in the experiences that we have. And so as this relates to OCD, it's relevant both in terms of the identities that people with lived experience hold, um, mm-hmm. Satan with clinicians, but also the way that OCD can present and latch onto some of these identities. In particular, I think we'll be focusing mostly on sexual orientation and gender identity and the ways that, that OCD tends to latch onto things that society has deemed unwanted or negative in some way. Right. We could look at so many different attributes of what makes a person a person. I'm a mom. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm a white woman. I'm a heterosexual. And so it's, it's, it's not to say we're writing off any particular person and saying your struggles don't matter. That's not what this conversation's about. It's about understanding that your struggles might be different from your neighbor's struggles are certainly going to be different than your other neighbor's struggles. And we need to learn about how we can improve across the board. None of us are just one thing. We have so many different layers and aspects to who we are and what makes us us and special. And this is really an aim at how can we look at treatment. In this case, we're going to be looking at exposure and response prevention. I've also been learning about ICBT and would love to ask you a few questions about that at the end too. But looking at treatment and how we engage in treatment and the messaging that gets said or things that aren't said but feel implied, how that can really impact not only the course of treatment and progress or or remission, whatever we want to call it, you're getting better, but it can really, really impact that sense of identity, which for some folks, that's the core of their OCD is that sense of identity. What if I'm not who I thought I was? What if I don't know who I am? What if I make one wrong choice and it unravels the whole thing? And so when we think about some of these really defining characteristics of different identifiers, it has a huge impact. So yeah, like you said, we're going to be talking about sexual orientation, OCD. We're going to be talking about gender-themed OCD. And this conversation is much larger than that. So we warrant that we are kind of zooming in for practicality of trying to stay on topic. Nicole, you can do it. You can do it. (laughs) But this is such a broad conversation that we'll get where we get today. But the nice thing about a conversation is we can continue to have conversations and we should. And it's important. So we're going to start here with sexual orientation, OCD, and gender-themed OCD. Now, within sexual orientation, OCD, people may have heard it referred to by a different name in the past, homosexual orientation, OCD, or homosexual OCD, which part of where we're starting, even in talking about SO, sexual orientation, OCD, is the language we use matters. Right. And so in terms of having that shift and really calling for that shift, can we just talk a little bit about what sexual orientation OCD is and why, A, not limiting it to 
one sexual orientation is helpful, but also how that feels pathologizing to sexual orientation. And so talking about the importance of what all that includes, because it's it, it may not even deal with homosexuality at all. And yeah. so it calls for better understanding if we can talk about that. Yes, most definitely. And I appreciate you starting there because I think a lot of people have changed their language to to call this SOOCD, but there are a lot of people who haven't. And there's still information out there that that refers to this as HOCD. So I think it's really important to continue to remind people that of the field, we've moved beyond that term for several reasons. For one thing, the term homosexual, a lot of people experience that now as pejorative mm-hmm. and offensive. So we don't want to use that term for that reason, but also because it's not super accurate. So sexual orientation, OCD, in general, centers on one's sexual identity. It could be doubting what your sexual orientation is. It could be a fear of becoming a a certain sexual identity or being perceived as having that sexual identity. And so we might commonly think about people who are straight and might be have obsessions about whether or not they're gay. But there are also plenty of people who are gay who have sexual orientation obsessions about being straight. People can have obsessions about, am I bisexual or any number of things, asexual. Mm -hmm. So not only is it a term that we want to move past just as a society in general, but we also want to use terminology that's actually accurate and fully captures all the different ways that these obsessions can manifest. Yeah. And can we talk about because sexual, the maturation of sexual development starts at a very young age and it grows exponentially as we are growing through different developmental stages. And so our understanding and our conceptualization of it really blooms over time. And in looking at how confusing like, think about for kids. I don't know about you, but I have I have friends whose kids are going off to college or clients and whatnot. And they're like, how am I supposed to know what I want to do for the rest of my life? Right. Like and that's like a pretty core thing. Now we know you can have more than one career. Back in the day, it was like you're going to probably do this for 30 years. Don't mess up. Now, this is not to say sexual orientation is as easy of a decision as figuring out a career because it's not about a decision. It's biologically who you experience yourself to be, but it can still be confusing. So in terms of developing those different layers, because maybe you're going to start with an attraction here and then a crush here early in your development, you might know, am I having, do I identify as heterosexual or do I identify as gay? Am I a lesbian? Am I a bi? Right? Like trying to figure out that piece is hard enough and confusing enough. But we have to also recognize the filters historically over time that have given messaging about whether it's okay or not okay. Growing up today is a very different scenario. And yet, if you will talk to people that identify in the LGBTQIA plus community, they still feel a lot of stigma around it. But it's very different than 10 years ago or even 20 years ago or 50 years ago, how you could be treated and really persecuted for being you. And so in terms of trying to explore the complexity of understanding who you are sexually with some of those filters that still exist today, 
One of the struggles that can come about is when we talk about OCD, we talk about themes and intrusive thoughts or obsessional doubts come up that are ego dystonic to who we know ourselves to be, meaning they are in opposition of who we know ourselves to be versus egocentric in sync with who we understand ourselves to be. But during that time, it is such a, a difficult experience to kind of figure out who you are. Because even if we were to go back to probably undergrad developmental psych, maybe even a high school course, we talk about like Eric Erickson's stages of development. I mean, the fifth stage, I think it is something, this has been a minute, so, <laughs> but I think it's like the fifth stage is something like struggle of identity versus role confusion. And you think of those primitive years in early adolescence, everybody is like feeling so awkward and trying to figure out who they are. And so how do we sort out, is this just part of, I don't know what to make of this. This is the first time I'm really experiencing aspects of sexuality. So I don't know what to make of it. Or is it ego dystonic? Like I'm feeling that distress because I don't think this is who I am. Does that question make sense? It does. It does. And you point out something really important, too, in that sexuality and, and gender identity can also be very fluid for people. This idea of figuring something out, just like you mentioned with careers, you can change careers. Well, there might be different identity labels that feel more true for you at different points in your life. Mm-hmm. Maybe when you're growing up, you strongly identified with with being gay or lesbian. And then as time goes on, it's like, well, actually, you know, I might be a little bit more bisexual. And so that's one thing to to consider, too, when we think about just the normal development of things, that, that these things can kind of ebb and flow, which is not only true, but also maybe a little anxiety provoking for people who have SOOCD, because I'm sort of saying, even if you think you figured it out, you might not have figured it out long term, right? Well, and if we think about OCD more broadly, the uncertainty is what's really driving a lot of anxiety, right? So if you have, even if there is fluidity, not knowing when it'll change or if it'll change or why it would change or why it wouldn't change, Like when we think about it under the broader umbrella of OCD, that's where we get to go. It's not so much the content, it's OCD is OCD is OCD, right? Because the fear there, if we're getting caught up on the sexual orientation piece, then we might be missing the uncertainty of why that matters underneath, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're focusing on the manifestation of symptoms here based on, you know, what's being reported. But really, what is what is that boil down to? That boils down to, I don't know if I what I know is right. And that is so scary and so distressing that I am now engaging in these safety behaviors or these compulsions to deal because it feels so important. The urgency is so grand that I have to figure that out. And so while it is important to recognize that, you and I, before we got on Dr. Pensiati, were just talking about how content does matter, though. And this gets a little tricky when we think about ERP, because ERP, Exposure and Response Prevention, the gold standard especially here in the U.S. for the treatment of OCD, it's very quick to say content is content, right? Even from an ICBT lens, you would look at content as 
important insofar as we understand how we reasoned ourselves into it, because it's about reasoning in and out and understanding that mechanism versus the content. But content is important because when we're talking about whether it's religion, race, being neurodivergent, sexual orientation, or gender identity, content is such a piece of who you are that if we are dismissive of content, we could really be missing some big keys into why this uncertainty is hard. Yeah. So something that I have heard quite a bit is when we're doing ERP, you don't want to get lost in the weeds and go with the content too much because really OCD at its core is it is this doubting disorder, which I agree with in principle. But then what this sometimes translates to is developing exposures to the surface level content that actually inadvertently harm the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what this call to action work has focused on is letting us recognize that when the content implicates a community that's marginalized, mm-hmm. that it's up to us professionals to make sure that we are being very thoughtful in the way we're developing exposures and implementing treatment. So we're not just sort of taking these surface level fears, which might be rooted in stereotypes, and just going with them without correcting them. Yes. So this is an important note. And I would say for therapists and for family members that are so integral to supporting the interventions or support the ERP at home, similarly to clinicians, and we would expect this for the family members, it can be hard to know how that translates to doing the ERP homework at home sometimes. But what I would say is clinicians can certainly get caught on how to do the ERP homework in session and at home. And my intention is not to throw anybody under the bus, but I'll just talk about my own journey in entering into OCD therapy. Now I'm in the middle of the Midwest, jump on IOCDF, and there's another provider 100 miles from me. I learned from virtual trainings with International OCD Foundation, a lot of accredited trainings through different organizations, and I did the best I could. But the theme I noticed when I would go to like the virtual conventions, which during COVID particularly, everything turned virtual, which was nice because we had more access. But, but I, what I remember in particular was this craving, myself included, for people to just show me how to do it to make sure I'm doing it right. Now, I also am a recovering perfectionist that has a bit of that in an OCD theme. So that is also kind of how I roll in everything in life. But to that point, I did feel like when sometimes they would do the Zoom call after a presentation and they would role play and people were like, more of this, more of this, more of this. I need more examples. And the point with OCD isn't to copy verbatim and exposure and go do it in session because what your client struggles with, what your loved one for this listening community, your partner, your spouse, your child struggles with, is going to be uniquely different than the person next to them. No one person is going to have the exact same issues and profile. But I think there is such an anxiety, kind of a parallel process of anxiety that therapists go through of, I don't want to screw it up, but we get real focused on the symptom presentation, and then we don't actually address the underlying issue. 
And so that can be a real struggle. And as I was doing it, I was like, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm doing harm? Again, that could be also part of my lived experience being loud there. But it was it felt very, very critical to get it correctly. And as I went through BTTI training and just learning more and then reminding myself that I'm actually confident in how I'm learning information and I don't need to spiral into intrusive thoughts about that. It's brought a lot of relief, but I still see it from my peers in the field of like, okay, but what would the intervention look like then? And what would this look like then? And it's like, well, it could look a lot of different ways as long as we're targeting the actual underlying core fear issue, the the problem in ICBT, we would say inferential confusion around vulnerable self-themes. Like as long as we are targeting that, we should be okay. But sometimes, especially within these sexual orientation and gender-themed ERP exercises, it can be more like, let me go hang out with gay people and see if it makes me feel more gay. Let me go to a gay club. Let me use the pride flag as a prop. Let me engage in these different ways. And that's, again, just assuming that it would only be straight people worried about becoming gay when there are plenty of other examples of people going, no, what if I'm about to get married? And I'm like, oh, wait, but I might not actually be a lesbian. What if I am attracted to men? And I don't think I'm attracted to men, but then am I throwing away my life with this woman that I'm about to marry? Like that anxiety there's no discrimination on OCD. It, it doesn't care what your skin color is, your sexual orientation, your religion, your your neurotype. Like it, it's going to hit. So I've I've gotten in a little soliloquy, and I want to bring Dr. Pensiati back in because this family hears me soliloquy enough. But yeah, you're bringing up some really important points, and more or less, I'm saying I agree. Yeah, and and so are you. And thing that that I would add to, we talked about this a little bit in our conversation before we went on, is it's really common when you're first starting in this work as a, a professional or even as a person with lived experience trying to design exposures for yourself or figure out what you should be challenging yourself with. Mm-hmm. To go with these surface level fears and try and figure out like, what is the most extreme thing that I can do to really increase anxiety. I joke with Marty Franklin because I always quote him when I talk about this. And I feel like I should be paying him royalties at this point. But he describes this as like the fear factor approach. It's easy to slip into this like, OK, how can I get the most bang for my buck? And Certainly, there are issues with that across the board, but especially when we think about SOOCD, gender-themed OCD, how that can be such a slippery slope into doing things that are actually homophobic or transphobic. But it's also not necessary. It's not functional to force ourselves to do these super, super, super extreme things, and in particular, at the expense of the LGBTQIA plus community, something we should always keep in the back of our mind. Am I helping or am I harming this community? Yeah. I, I tend to think in analogies a lot, and I one popped into my head, and if this doesn't work, it, they don't all stick. They're not all winners, but I'm going to throw it out there, and I just want to preface that I'm not likening these two scenarios to be equitable, but I am thinking this might be helpful just to put it in some neutral ground for for folks, okay? Let's say you go in and say even if it's you're going into IOCDF, maybe you plan to go to the conference in San Francisco this year, or you're going to ADAA, which is the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. They have a conference coming up. 
in a few months here. And say you're a dog person, you love dogs and you just love them. And you're sitting in there and you're they're your fur family. No, they're family. Drop the fur. They are family, right? You love dogs. If you're sitting there in a session trying to get help and people were like, well, yeah, but what if I actually love dogs? And people were like, oh, yeah, we could really do some great exposures around loving dogs. We'll have you go into a pound. We'll have you sleep with all these dogs. We'll see, do you still love dogs or not? And we're going to take it to this extreme. How would it feel? For you, the person that is like, that's my family. That is my love. That is, that's part of being pathologized of, ooh, well, we wouldn't want to be dog lovers. That would be awful. I mean, that's the messaging that comes across. And again, I'm not saying loving dogs is anything even in the ballpark of meaningful. And uh, okay, my dog lovers, I love dogs too. So I'm not saying it's not meaningful. But I'm just saying, it, I'm not saying it's equitable, but when we can think about it in kind of a neutral way and go, oh, yeah, I guess if that was happening, I wouldn't like that. Because you're going somewhere for help and then you're realizing actually just who I am feels like not acceptable. So I'm trying to work on getting better. And I, at, at the core, I'm just, I'm, I'm what people are afraid they could become. Boy, that would feel pretty shitty. And sometimes we use the cursing words. So there it is. <laughs> and so then we take something that's so core to who you are. Religion would be a very easy one, too. Not all religious people are bad and not all religious people are good. All religious people are people. And so we're going to have some great people. We're going to have some bad apples. But if it informs a lot of your worldview and your understanding and your sense of self, and then it's like, oh, but the religious people. I don't want to be them because they can be judgy and they can, they can, but so can everybody else be judgy. And I'm not trying to say that there hasn't been some, some really difficult persecution, especially when we're thinking about the LGBTQIA plus population, but there are people, there are plenty of people that identify as both. And so how are they supposed to reconcile that? How are they supposed to go? Well, I'm bi, but I'm Christian, or I'm a lesbian, but I'm also Jewish. Like, how do we reconcile? Because both of those, I would imagine, are so important to just fundamentally who you are that sitting there and not being mindful of the language we use, not only that, but the biases that may underlie some of the language. And you might think, like, but I have nothing against. I love people in all communities. Okay, but let's, again, if we, if we were the dog lover there and you're like, oh, those disgusting dog lovers, ha <laughs> like, that's probably a big piece of your OCD fear even of what if I am disgusting? What if I am never going to be good enough? What if I'm fighting for something that I'm a fraud, I'm a phony? It becomes an existential thing even perhaps. So it's really, really important for us to understand that, and I think the key into understanding that is understanding language first. To understand language, then, we also need to be able to have conversations because we're not all coming at any given conversation from the same experience, 
from the same trauma history. One of the things you point out, which I should highlight a little better, Dr. Pinciotti and a team of amazing doctors, different folks, came together, wrote a call to action that really highlights a lot of this, which I don't know. Dr. Pinciotti, is that publicly available? It's not only because of the journal's specific copyright rules, but I will happily share that with anyone. If they want to email me, I can send them a copy of it. Okay, great. So I'm going to put Dr. Pinciotti's email on this episode's blog post, and you can ask her for a copy of that article if you're interested in reading it. My hope is that if you're listening to this, that you would consider reading it because it expands so well and so thoughtfully and so conscientiously with really solution-focused ideas on how to address some of these issues that we're discussing today. So I will definitely include that. But yeah, I mean, it's this is language matters, having conversations matter. And I think sometimes people are intimidated. I was writing, I was talking to Dr. Pensiani before this, and I was like, you would think like I'm doing an investigation when I could take yarn and go around the pins or whatever. I was like, oh, there are so many different ideas I want to discuss. And at the same time, I realized I could totally sound ridiculous and naive. And sometimes that's the rub, right? We don't want to come off as insensitive. It's hard to be vulnerable and sometimes say, I don't know what I don't know. And so sometimes that detracts from having some really, really important conversations. But at the same time, it's really important to have conversations, A, to learn. <laughs> like we just, we don't know what we don't know. So let's learn. And B, similar to something I was telling Dr. Pensiati, similar to sometimes our loved ones can inadvertently get that message when we're trying to help them with their OCD fears. And we're like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'll just open the door for them. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'll just tap this a couple times. It makes them feel better. I'll lock up the knives, whatever it is, right? And we inadvertently sometimes send that messaging to our loved one, like, yeah, you shouldn't be trusted with this stuff. And, and you're not capable of protecting us from this stuff. And we do need to guardrail you from hurting other people. When we don't have conversations, I also just have to wonder, is that the message that we are giving people that this doesn't matter? It's not important. I think people, whether we're talking about trauma, whether we're talking about microaggressions, whether we're talking about intersectionality, social justice, we can be afraid and uncomfortable to have the conversation. And what if I say something wrong? I'm sure I'll say many things wrong for the rest of my life. But I hope that by having conversation, if I can show respect to people, that they can also respect me and go, hey, you maybe didn't realize this, but this is how this came off. And I can learn from that because that's part of respecting each other, that we can gently but firmly say back to people, I get where you're trying to come from. And this this would be a better way of addressing it. Or this is further stigmatizing people and we didn't mean to. And have those conversations. Yeah. I mean, that's been the whole goal of this call to action work since it started a few years ago is we're all on the same side here. We all just want to care for each other, help people with OCD to live their fullest lives. And so the idea isn't like, let's wag our fingers and then call out these people because you've been doing it wrong, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But it, let's all reflect on the ways that our field 
has inadvertently harmed the LGBTQIA plus community in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, we're not even getting into things like conversion therapy, but but thinking specifically about the OCD field, mm-hmm. let's reflect on that, have these hard conversations and figure out how we can move forward together. And so that's really what our focus was on as as we kind of started this from the ground up. It started with just a couple of casual conversations with colleagues, and then we brought in people across institutions, and then we were working on this paper. And IOCDF has been so wonderful in having some of us on for a lunch and learn webinar last year and inviting us to do the professional plenary at the conference last year in Denver. And so as this work has expanded, we've gotten a lot of really positive feedback and a lot of people saying exactly what you're saying. A, I love this and I want to do it. Mm-hmm. B, I'm worried I might do it wrong. Mm-hmm. I do that. And I think part of that learning process is both giving examples of this is what we've traditionally done and why that's harmful. This is what we can do instead. But yeah. also share that people have a really deep understanding of what we mean when we say justice-oriented ERP. So that when those experiences come up, like, oh, I'm in the moment, I don't know what I should do with this, you can build on this foundation of knowledge that you have. Yes, yes. I think that is, it is super important. And the justice-oriented, so if we took something like, let's think about like pedophilia, OCD, right? And this is one that I think people are even afraid to talk about because there's so many big feelings. You hear the word pedophilia. And if there's anything where we're going to help this person, you're going to help a pedophile. That's not that is not what we're talking about. In fact, this is why the sufferer is suffering so much, because even in having these conversations, whether it's inside the therapy room or within families or even within themselves, it feels so jarring and so opposite of who they understand themselves to be. And the fear is, I'm going to be seen as a sicko, but I don't want to think this way. I don't want to feel this way, right? And so if we were doing ERP with someone that is struggling with intrusive thoughts or obsessional doubts about what if I could be dangerous to a child and I could impulsively act in a way that would bring harm that could be sexual, name a thing. We would not be like, let's go do our exposure about you touching kids and see if you actually like it. We would never. We would never. Right. And so, and already it's, I think, even if we're talking about how language matters, and we are, pedophilia, which is different, than pedophilia OCD, just even using that word, it just feels like an assignment of like rejection of who I am. No, I don't want to be that person. And so it's it gets really tough. But certain areas, similarly, what if you impulsively had a racial slur run through your head and you were absolutely disgusted by it because this isn't who you are? What do we want to treat there? Well, it's that piece I just said. This isn't who I am. We're not going to design an exposure where we're going to go out and say that to five people and see if it actually did feel good. No, we would never. Never. We would never. That would be insulting. That would be racist. We would be saying, go be racist and see if you actually like it. No, we wouldn't do that. We would say, you're concerned that you're not who you thought you were. 
how can we address that? How can we do some ERP around that? And so similarly, the answer isn't to wear a pride flag unless you are embracing the pride flag and that's egocentric with your value-driven system that you want to be able to accept who you are more fully. But if we are using that as a prop, then that is not that different than going, yeah, go touch five kids and see if you actually did like it. Are you a creep? Maybe you will be. Maybe you won't. Like, no, we would never. We right. would. And I would extend that to something that I hear a lot as examples of what we need to move away from are stereotypes about what gay people look like. Quote yeah. unquote. And then go do exposures to go sit next to a person who looks gay. Go flirt with a person who looks gay. And there's so many layers to that. Not only are we reinforcing these harmful stereotypes that you can tell what someone's sexual orientation is just by looking at them, mm-hmm. but we're, we're turning this into like an othering thing. And if we think about this as purely an OCD lens, yeah. um, we want to sit with uncertainty. So if I can, which I can't, but let's say hypothetically, if I can look at a person and already know who's gay and who's not gay, and I have SOOCD, it's going to be really easy for me to avoid people who are gay because I'm going to know exactly what they look like. Mm-hmm. In reality, that is not true. And what we need to move people towards is tolerating the uncertainty that you're never really going to know what someone's sexual orientation is unless they share that with you. And so really going and having a conversation with a stranger and tolerating the uncertainty, like maybe that person thought that I was flirting with them. Maybe that person thinks that I'm gay and I'm attracted to them is for one thing, way less offensive. And for another, it's actually going to give you way more bang for your buck in terms of tolerating the uncertainty. Yeah. Cause you're going more to the fear of I'm not going to know. And if I don't know, dun, 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 what could happen? Yeah. You're, you're targeting that. And as I tell clients all the time in terms of working on different ERPs, because generally we can come up with these hierarchies and we're working on different steps. And sometimes people will be like, but this thing up here, and that's what's really distressing. I don't want to start down here because that's not keeping me up at night. This is keeping me up at night. But a lot of times we're targeting very similar fears when we really boil it down. And so work on one theme, whether it's having that conversation and maybe they did think I was flirting, maybe I didn't. I guess either way, I can still go live my life and hopefully not forget to pick up $8 eggs at the grocery store on the way home because I was told three times to do that. You know, like I can go live my life and I don't, it doesn't have to be about this interaction. But again, like there are also so many other ways we can target that where we're still addressing the same core fear. And that's something that often comes up when we're thinking about harm towards others. Yeah, we're not like, okay, let me go slit somebody's wrist and see if that really does affect me. No, we're not doing that. But could I do another exposure where I might be dangerous and I'm actually targeting the fear of what if I'm dangerous? Mm-hmm. What if I'm a dangerous person? And learning to be able to live with the uncertainty and live your life, even if you could be dangerous. And maybe you're not. Yeah, maybe. And I love the example you brought up about blurting slurs and obscenities because you're exactly right. The exposure isn't, let's do that thing and see what you think about it. We don't need people to get used to using horrible slurs and that's horrible. But what you can do is have a conversation with someone 
and tolerate the uncertainty that maybe it will slip out. Maybe it has slipped out and you didn't realize it. You don't have to actually do the worst case scenario. And in fact, in most cases, I would argue that you shouldn't. Right. Because if you think about it from the racial slur standpoint, for example, like the thought coming into your head of a word or a phrase is so offensive that now we're questioning who we are. Why would the answer be now go say five times fast? What? Yeah. Right. But I think that comes down to misapplication of exposure and response prevention. Mm-hmm. And I know this is this might be controversial, but for the most part, I would say well-intentioned therapists. And I, I say that's controversial because some people were like, how would that ever be acceptable? And I'm not saying that it, it, it's acceptable, but I think people don't necessarily know what to do at times with the ERP. And so families, you guys can definitely relate to this because it's hard enough probably engaging in some if you're doing family work in the session work. But now how do I vary this at home? How do we practice this? I mean, that's tough because there are, I once had a mentor before I was in, she's still a mentor of mine, but (laughs) once about a time, but I used to be a specialist in early intervention, zero to five mental health and, and do a lot of work there. And I remember a training where she said, today we're going to talk about culture and culture is kind of like sex. Everybody has it, but they don't like to talk about it. And I remember that phrase really stuck out and I thought, Yeah, part of the thing beyond just how do we do this ERP exposure, because that's uncomfortable, is how do we talk about race, gender, sex, religion, neurodivergent presentations, neurotypical presentations? How do we even talk about this? Let's pause on the ERP for a minute and back up. Are we able to have conversations at all that tolerate uncertainty or varying perspectives when it comes to religion? Politics, sex, gender. Like, I think that's a hard topic for people to have in general. And guess what? If we don't have the conversations with each other, then we have them with other people. If you don't have the conversations with your kids, they're going to have it with their friends. They're probably going to have it with both. Let's just be honest. But how are they going to learn about this? What are they not going to learn about it? And so, not broaching a subject because it can feel a little uncomfortable is not helping. But it is hard. And I acknowledge that. I mean, growing up, I feel like I grew up in the Midwest. There wasn't a lot of talk about sex other than don't have it (laughs) unless you're married or whatever. Like, don't have it. And then when you would get married, there was also not a lot of talk about sex. So if, if you were somebody that waited or even if you weren't, but if you were somebody that waited and then you go and it wasn't all the magic and rainbows and things that you think it should be because of how much it was built up to be something, then something maybe was wrong with you. It's like, no, we need to learn how to have these conversations, particularly within our families, particularly within our relationships, because we come to these experiences from different, vastly different experiences, different perspectives. And then when you add layers of OCD in there, then you can see how, because we say OCD, it tends to target what we value. Yeah, this is going to target you where it hits the most. We need to be able to have those conversations, whether we have OCD or not. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be so afraid of 
making mistakes or misspeaking that you just avoid it altogether and then don't have room for growth. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. Yes. So in terms of you were giving an example of how maybe a script or not even necessarily a script, but an exposure would be done in the past and how we could morph that to tolerating uncertainty in not only a more pertinent way, but a justice oriented way. And I think because this gets so tricky, one of the things I love about the call to action article, too, is that you guys provide couple different side-by-side examples as well. And I think for the family who is going to be working on different exposures or whatnot with their family, can we talk maybe just a couple more examples of maybe how it used to be conceptualized or maybe has been conceptualized and then what a more justice-oriented lens would be for that? And then we can kind of follow up on that with, if you don't feel like that's what's happening in your therapy, whether it's you as the family member, you as the sufferer, you as the therapist, how to broach that. But those examples, I think, are really helpful for people to apply it. Definitely. Yeah. So I think broadly, things to consider as we're going through some of these examples are asking ourselves a lot of questions for reflection. Is this exposure contributing to the stigmatization of LGBTQIA+. Is it ignoring historical trauma that's been experienced by this community? Is it tokenizing or outing LGBTQIA+. And I think that the big one I must come back to is, would you feel comfortable doing this exposure in front of an LGBTQIA plus person? Like we need to start listening to our guts. And if something feels off or if it feels like, oh, I can do this exposure, but I can only do it in front of white people or I can only do it in front of straight people. Like we should listen to that as, okay, then we need to back up and rework this. And so some examples of, ways that we've done this in the past that we want to try and move away from mm-hmm. uh, would be things like, as I said, contamination about being LGBTQIA+, shaking hands with someone and sort of contracting that identity. There are a lot of examples around like, what does it mean to look gay or bi or lesbian or trans and dressing in that way and going out in public Sometimes folks will maybe write like some sort of worry script where they've come out to someone who then responds really negatively. So these are all ways that we're sort of inadvertently normalizing disgust and, and reinforcing this kind of stigma, mistreatment of LGBTQIA+. In addition to, in some cases, creating an unsafe environment, is it safe to have somebody putting aside the fact that it's also offensive? Is it actually safe to have our patients or people with lived experience go out dressing a certain way, knowing what the current sociopolitical climate is. And so ways that we can improve would be, as I said before, talking to a stranger that may or may not be LGBTQIA+, or maybe may think that you are LGBTQIA+, mm-hmm. doing things that help you learn more about the community So reading about what's the difference between, let's say, gender identity and gender expression. What is the historical context for LGBTQIA plus history, you know, Stonewall and and things that are currently happening? Mm -hmm. Maybe complimenting someone of the same gender, coming out to someone who responds neutrally or positively. One of the things that we included in the call to action was two example scripts, scripts. 
about somebody realizing, no, I don't have SOOCD, I'm actually gay. And we have kind of a traditional or problematic script where all of these horrible things happen because the person has realized that they're gay. Their wife leaves them, they lose all their friends, their family says they're disgusting and they just die alone. Mm-hmm. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. And that's not what it's like to be gay. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things to celebrate about that. And so we then give this example of how can we use a justice-oriented lens to do a worry script that's still going to be anxiety-provoking, it's still going to be the correct way to do ERP, but it does it in a way that isn't reinforcing all of these horrible, inaccurate beliefs about what it means to be gay. And so we go through, this person realizes that they're gay, they do leave their wife, but they end up being in a relationship with a man who they love very much. And they wish that they had learned much sooner that they were gay. Mm-hmm. Now, so with SOOCD, that still might be really anxiety provoking for them. Right. But we're making sure that we're not reinforcing this belief that being gay would be the absolute worst thing that can happen to you. And you can apply this to all sorts of other marginalized identities. We see this a lot, too, with like disability or diagnostic status, like what if I have schizophrenia? And then it's like, my life is going to be so horrible. I'm going to end up homeless. But there are a lot of people who live very valuable lives who just so happen to also have schizophrenia. So any sort of identity and making sure that the the end result isn't always your life is horrible and everybody hates you. Well, or pathologizing homeless people, right? Like homeless folks can have a myriad of situational things that have gotten them in a in a certain space where they don't have a home. And it can be very offensive to just liken it to, well, that would be, again, like meaningless if I was home. It's like, just because they don't have a home doesn't mean they don't deserve dignity. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. Something that I was reflecting on and as you were talking about that is part of what's hard about ERP is it's nuanced. In terms of if we can keep our eye on the prize of like, are we actually going towards like the underlying interests of thought here and looking a little a step or two below what's just at the surface at the very least. But I'm thinking of even within BTTI training, somebody is afraid maybe they shoplifted is a could be a clinical scenario. And yeah, then what would happen? And it's all the bad things would happen. Oh, yeah, then I'd probably get caught and might be thrown in jail. And then well, I wouldn't have to make dinner tonight. That might end up being this really bad thing. And then we can catastrophize up into the sensational amount. And I know I've done this before in sessions with certain things about how the whole world ended just because I saw a bee outside or whatever it is. But then it doesn't translate to other content areas. And this is where we need to be mindful about content areas. But also, if it doesn't translate to the other content areas, then was that maybe even the best route to go towards our B exposure or whatever it is, right? Thinking, are we really targeting? Yes, it's okay to be sensational with OCD. There's a difference between being a little sensational with the gravity of possibilities and being in that fear factor mode like you used in that example before, right? But I think... Because that's a nuanced difference, sometimes people, as they're learning, and I would include myself when I was first learning, look at it and go, okay, this is the formula. And so we can see how 
we come out with some of these really pejorative outcomes from different exposures where it's actually further marginalizing people. And so part of that awareness, I mean, I think I've been guilty of it, too. So I'm not pointing the finger at anyone specifically. I mean, I can point it at me (laughs) because I was there and I've developed through this. But that is a tricky part about trying to do ERP. And, you know, what I hope people will hear, especially if clinicians are listening to this right now, isn't, yeah, see, you should be worried about how you're doing your ERP. I mean, I guess we should always be mindful and want to be as ethical as possible. So we should be mindful in any intervention we're doing, whether it's ERP or not. But it's the don't get so concentrated on the formula that you're missing the client. You're missing why this intrusive thought matters. If you know it hits their value, then why is that their value? This is where you can do the exposure. That might include the practical symptoms that are presenting, or it might mean we go a completely different route. Because if it's so important to even think a racial slur, why would we go say it five times? That's like we're doing the important thing purposely five times. Now, maybe we should feel a little something about that. You know, why do that? I need to do that fit, right? So I think learning and just being able to understand our own biases, our own realizations. A lot of us providers in the field that really become OCD specialists are really driven to want to bring hope and create opportunity amidst uncertainty to be able to live and thrive. Those aren't bad things, but we're not always getting it right. And I should hope we never think we are, because when we think we got it all right, We're not learning anymore. And every day is a new day. So new things are happening. And we need to also adapt. If we're thinking about adaptation and growth, we need to be able to adapt and have some flexibility in the way we think and conceptualize about things too. So that's certainly very helpful. So if you're a family member, spouse, a loved one, maybe you've been a part of your loved one's ERP therapy, or maybe you're just helping facilitate that environment at home. And you're listening to this and going, oh, I'm having a light bulb that maybe, maybe we were playing a part in that. What suggestions would you have? We're talking with the amazing support community here, but whether it's you yourself as a sufferer or a loved one of a sufferer, bringing this up to the therapist, because the therapist can sometimes feel like, okay, you're the expert and I shouldn't challenge that. And if I did, then you might say I was doing a compulsion because I didn't want to do any of the shit we just did. (laughs) You're right. But I was compulsing, so I had to, which is another thing. If you feel like you can't say something without it being labeled as a compulsion, that's a problem, too. But how do we have these conversations with providers from the sufferer or the support community's perspective? I think the first step, whether you are a person with OCD, a family member, or whether you're the provider yourself, is to understand and acknowledge where this presentation comes from. So many people with SO and gender-themed OCD will say, like, I'm not homophobic, I'm not biphobic, I'm not transphobic, I, I have friends, I have family members, I love them, I don't know why I'm having these obsessions. Most people who have this presentation are not overtly homophobic, biophobic, transphobic. Right. But we have to acknowledge 
the messages that we all internalize being part of a society that is mm. a society that puts certain people's experiences at the forefront and neglects considering other people's experiences. So assuming that everybody is cisgender, assuming that everybody is straight is an example of this, that people have to come out and tell us otherwise. Mm -hmm. There are lots of messages that we internalize, some maybe a little bit more benign, some of them maybe a a little bit more horrible. But acknowledging that this presentation of OCD would probably not exist if we didn't have the societal stigma. Even if you yourself feel as though you don't ascribe to it. It's a reflection of anti-LGBTQIA plus stigma in society. I like to joke that, of course, anything in OCD is possible, but the likelihood that somebody would have an obsession about like, what if tomorrow I wake up and all of a sudden I'm rich and everybody loves me and I'm super attractive, that's probably not going to happen, right? Because society looks <laughs> that's good, right? Right. And there are benefits to to being those things and having those resources. Mm-hmm. And so I think the first piece is acknowledging and normalizing this comes from messages that we've all internalized. And so to your question then about well, what do we then do with this information? I think you can have an open conversation with your provider about I, I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable about the ways that some of these exposures might actually be reinforcing some of these stereotypes that I might have, or maybe I don't even have these stereotypes, but we're doing exposures about them. I'm worried about what people that I love who are LGBTQIA plus might think of this or how this might be harmful to them. Mm -hmm. You could direct them to this podcast. You could direct them to the call to action paper. I'll talk to that. <laughs> the, the, the email, the email's available. Yeah. You're know? <laughs> like, we'll have a chat. Don't you, don't you worry. I'll get, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll help you. <laughs> I got your back. I got your back. But, but yeah, I, and like you were saying, if, if your provider responds to everything that you say as this is a compulsion, this is a ritual, then that might not be a great shift for you because that person might not be seeing you as a whole person, a mm-hmm. human that has a variety of different experiences. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, directing them to some of these resources, this is the way that the field is heading. And these are the types of exposures I want to do. So giving examples, like rather than doing this exposure, could we change it to be this way? So you're showing I'm not resistant to doing ERP for my SOOCD. I just would like to tweak it so that it's still just as effective, but it's a little bit less harmful. Yes, that's that's excellent. And, you know, the... <laughs> The point, too, that is like that I just kind of had this, aha, yeah, when you were saying that about having that conversation with a provider, it was like, yeah, if they're not listening to you, yeah, that's a problem. Yes. Right. Yeah. Listening. And they're OCD. Right. Right. Well, and it's like, you know, I got little kids. We're like, hey, where are your listening ears? Sometimes then we don't have our listening ears on. And that's in this day and age with social media. You don't have to have listening ears. You can talk about impulsive thoughts broadcasted in the split second across the world. So you don't have to think before you speak. And for some folks, it's going to be hard to sometimes slow down their brain and process through some of that before the, before it's just out there. But we can be respectful and mindful and learning and say, okay, that was a mess up. I'm learning. And I know sometimes in this day and age when when things happen, we will get kind of these blanket statements of, oh, I'm learning. 
I messed up, you know, but it feels disingenuous. And so what I would say is it's important if you're learning, be honest about that. I think that will shine through. I would hope that it shines through. And if not, well, good thing we know how to hold some uncertainty. Because ultimately, what we're learning about is how we are learning. And so if other people recognize that learning in us or not, well, that's we're not going to be able to control what other people are doing. We're just learning for ourselves. And it's an active process. And so I think that is really, really important. Another intersection that I think is tricky along with this is when we take LGBTQIA plus and religious scrupulosity or moral scrupulosity. I have people all over the world that are tuning into the podcast. Most of the population, well, a good chunk of the population is from the U.S., but people all over the world. Certain countries still where it can be against the law to even have your hair show, let alone have a different sexual orientation than what is recognized by the law or legal entity there. And certainly that can make it hard to be able to express yourself and you're dealing with some real, real, like not to say the other stuff isn't persecution, but I mean, you you could have some very legal consequences for just being who you are. So that's that's a real struggle. But in terms of just understanding this intersection with different faith backgrounds, with varying levels of acceptance, tolerance, discrimination, whatever. Like there's so many different words that you can fill in there. I think this becomes a hard place for people. Sometimes people growing up in a church community, for example, might feel like I can't be gay, I can't be lesbian, I can't be bi, I can't be trans, I can't be anything other than a heterosexual whatever growing up and and marrying and having a heterosexual monogamous marriage and that's it and the end, right? But at the same time, sometimes there can be some scrupulosity there of what if I'm having these feelings because I'm not right with God. It can get all intertwined and God is one example. There are a lot of different faith traditions, although I think classically we probably think of Christianity or Catholicism more. And so In terms of reconciling that, because sometimes you can have two areas of OCD going on here. We might have, I am gay and I am struggling with that, but also struggling like, do I actually like other people and should I be going? Maybe I'm bi, but maybe I should just like women all along. And now I'm all confused about the sexual orientation piece. But now I'm also in this wrestling with God because I'm just going to embrace, going to pursue a relationship and engage in that. And now I'm like, well, is God even real because it denied who I am? And now I have this moral scrup piece or this spiritual scrup piece. And that yin and yang, it's it's a hard reinforcing struggle. I don't even know the better word to use for it. But I think it comes up more when we're thinking about some of the judgment. It gets grouped with religion a lot more. And there are plenty of people in every sexual orientation that have rich religious lives as well. So can we talk about that piece? Because that, I think, is a particular area, not exclusive just to this area, but it is a particular area where I think it presents a rub for a lot of people. Most definitely. I think first and foremost, it's important in some situations to acknowledge that 
sometimes makes its own rules. You know, it, it, it takes some sort of religious dogma and twists it or makes it more extreme. Mm-hmm. And then folks are living by what they think are the rules of their religion, but are actually way into the extreme of, of what most folks in that community would ascribe to. And so it's important in those instances to get sort of that reality check of like, okay, what, what does my community actually think about this thing? Because it could be way in the extreme. Now, obviously, as you were saying, a lot of times it's not on the extreme. And there are some cultures and some religious spaces that do have very anti-LGBTQIA plus beliefs. And so, you know, when, when we were working on the call to action paper, I consulted with Christine Dolly. She's this phenomenal spiritual consult that we had at Rogers where I was working at the time. And she talked a lot about it's not about whether or not I approve of or accept certain people. But can I cultivate an open mind about the possibility of still having positive interactions and relationships with LGBTQIA plus people, even if we have differences of opinion? And can I also pick which elements of my religion fit with my values? So if I feel that I want to accept LGBTQIA plus people, but my religious community says otherwise, well, maybe I can take which pieces of that are consistent with my values and leave the pieces that that aren't. We're all adults and and we have free will. And there are some people who believe that God has bestowed upon us this free will. And that would include being able to take the pieces of your spirituality that fit with the kind of person that you want to be. And thinking, how can I use these values to cultivate the type of meaningful life that I want to live? rather than allowing these scrupulous beliefs and fears to build a foundation for a life of avoidance and fear. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And sometimes a counter argument will be, well, you're cherry picking what fits and what doesn't. But also if we kind of zoom out generally in OCD, a very helpful practice, wherever you are, when in doubt, clinicians, if you're like, am I doing zoom out? Am I too up in this that I can't see the forest or the trees? But if we zoom out, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to use this black and white thinking, right? That it's all or nothing. Either I fit all or I fit nothing of it. And essentially that's kind of what we're doing. But if you think about it in other ways, I mean, there are plenty of issues. They're, they can be controversial in their own right, but, you know, corporal punishment or death penalty or you know, whatever. We can go, okay, well, how do I reconcile that with my faith? Well, something tells me not everybody agrees on that either, right? But we tend to focus on some of these other areas like sexual orientation, gender identity. And the point isn't, yeah, the point isn't that we all have to agree on something, but how can we respect one another? And if we want to lean into religious tenets of love one another, then I guess we're going to try and love one another by respecting one another, whether we agree or not. Right. What a boring world it would be if we all agreed on everything. And where would some change and some growth come from in that without some disagreement, without some wrestling with things? It's not a bad thing to wrestle. It's another thing when we realize some of our wrestling may be perpetuating stigmas, may be perpetuating 
violence, if we have a person that's afraid to use public bathrooms, and part of that is avoidance because they don't want to get beat up in the bathroom for being targeted as one gender or another, then we're probably not going to want to do an exposure around contamination in public bathrooms. Because is it safe? I mean, we've got to look at the legitimacy of like why, why this is a stigma, why this could be harmful. And our duty is to always be acting in the beneficence of the client and to keep people safe. We are not there to do further harm. We're there to help people live to their values. And so I think that's a really great point. And if we could just, people with differing opinions, if we could learn, one of the first things you said there, Dr. Pinciati, was if we could learn how to take what differences there are and okay, and that's what we're going to hang on to our differences here, but see where we can come together, where we could intersect, for lack of a better term. Well, boy, if we could just do that at large in this polarized day and age, wouldn't that be a beautiful thing where we don't have to agree? But we also don't have to just flush all of your thoughts and ideas and value down the toilet because you didn't agree with me here. And it's really hard when it's something very core to who you are. Fair. You're allowed to be upset. But we still need to be able to have communication, right? Because we don't have justice for anyone if we can't even talk. That's, that's, just, that's just the reality. As we wrap up here, I feel like this could be a whole nother subject, but I'm just going to, I'm going to try and touch on it lightly. Wish me luck. In terms of, I've been learning about ICBT and one of the things we were talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're talking about some pivots to typical ERP to help people understand how they can be more justice-based, right? And so an evolution of where we can go with that. In my evolution as an OCD therapist, I've learned, and really through this podcast, I've started to learn more about ICBT as well, inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy, which ERP is a version of cognitive behavioral therapy. But one of the things I was thinking about, because here's something that's really attractive about the idea of ICBT to me as someone that is learning and continuing to learn both, I never really loved the idea in ERP, where intrusive thoughts are intrusive thoughts are intrusive thoughts, right? And it's just because we have the thought doesn't mean it has any meaning. And yet, somehow, it was like batting a 300 here, if that's even using, like I'm a baseball person. I don't even know if I'm using that exactly correctly. But it's like hitting all these core targets that are highly individualized across people, but it's completely random. Now, I'm not as familiar with research. I mean, I like to think I know a a thing or two and I try to keep up with it. But what I do know about research is randomly, if we are having intrusive thoughts and it's hitting value markers pretty much every time, that's statistically pretty impressive for randomization of intrusive thoughts. So something that has been appealing in learning more about ICBT is learning more about these vulnerable self-themes of what if I'm disgusting? What if I'm immoral? What if, you know, when I've talked with colleagues, when I've talked with clients, and just even friends about I'm proud of who I am, and at the end of the day, what if I am a a screw-up? Like, what if there is something wrong with me and I missed it? 
Something that I've appreciated about learning more about ICBT is really, and this could correlate to the the core fears for people as well, but is just this idea of vulnerable self-themes. Like if we have at the core of our OCD, a vulnerable self-theme of being afraid of what if I missed something and I made a choice or I, I did something that actually isn't who I am. And all of this is built on sand here. I, I don't actually know who I am, that identity crisis that we were talking about before. Then seeing how obsessional thoughts, especially around these vulnerable self-themes, can manifest so easily, whether you have a relevant trigger there or not, is is really interesting to me. So I don't know where you fall in that. I know you're doing great work with ERP, but I just was curious in terms of what your exposure <laughs> exposure, for lack of a better term, to that has been and kind of your thoughts on that, if you don't mind my asking. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'll admit I I know very, very little, if not next to nothing about ICBT. I'm aware of work that's being done in that area, and I'm actually hoping to attend a training on that next month. So hopefully I'd have a better answer at that point. I've had some some recent conversations with a colleague about ICBT and how we can apply that to both LGBTQIA plus people's experiences, but also OCD and PTSD, which, as you mentioned, is, is my other focus of my work. But unfortunately, I don't have a lot to share in terms of my own insights because it, it's all very novel to me. Yeah, it's fairly novel to me, too. So again, I might have blurbed it up and then one I know I said that was like the the last thing but one other thing that I just saw a scribbled note I have which I think is interesting it probably could be a whole nother podcast episode too but in terms of thinking of sexual orientation OCD and relationship OCD what if and there might just be like a big overlap maybe but I would think like you know because I think sometimes the thought is take the scenario what if I'm getting married to somebody but this is not actually who I am or I identify in other ways as well and I might be missing out on something in my life because I wasn't recognizing it at the time and now I'm choosing to commit myself in this relationship like what if right say that's the core thought to me that sounds very much like a relationship OCD issue but I could also see it being kind of lumped in an, a sexual orientation OCD. And I think, again, this is where some of the danger can be of like coming up with such concrete symptom-related ERP exposures because we might be missing the whole point. And I think relationship OCD is tricky for people anyway to sometimes know what to do with. And there's a lot of the mental compulsion piece to ROCD. Can you talk about, do you find, is there a big differentiation here between relationship OCD and, and sexual orientation OCD, or is it maybe kind of just a broader example of relationship OCD that we're like, but it's sexual orientation OCD? Do you get, does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. It's an interesting point. I think that there's definitely a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap. A lot of our sexual orientation or our sexual identity is related to what types of people do I find myself attracted to, whether it's romantically or sexually or both. Who would I want to have these sorts of non-platonic relationships with? 
you can see that overlap where I might be questioning not only is my partner right for me, but is one of the reasons they're not right for me because maybe they're not the gender that I'm attracted to. So there's certainly overlap. But I think where there's a difference is there are also more like cultural aspects of being the LGBTQIA plus community Mm -hmm. that go beyond your current relationship status. So, you know, someone could be bisexual, lesbian, gay, whatever the case may be, asexual, regardless of whether they're currently in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the fears associated with what might be the negative consequences of me being LGBTQIA plus extend beyond just, will I be with the right person? It might also be, will I be mistreated by my family, by my friends, by society? Am I going to experience these very real, what we call minority stress experiences of mm-hmm. uh, TQIA plus people experience. So I think you're right. There's certainly a Venn diagram and mm-hmm. that they each kind of have their own unique element to that. Yeah, no, that's really helpful feedback. And I was just, as we were getting ready to jump on, I'm like, it's kind of the relationship OCD, but you're right. Cause I'm thinking about it in terms of intimate partner or intimate relationships who you would want to build with, who you wouldn't, what if, what if you got that wrong, whatever. And you're right. The cultural pieces around that too are so much more than just intimate relationship, but it is certainly a a huge component, but you might not be in any relationships at all and, and still be dealing with a lot of the stigma around all of that. So that is absolutely a great, great point. Well, I really appreciate all your time today. It was such a great conversation, and I really appreciate having just an opportunity to dialogue. I guess at the end of the day, the thing that I would hope that people could do, other than emailing Dr. Pensiati and saying, can I get a copy of that excellent article? Also going, you could go to YouTube, IOCDF's Lunch and Learn. You guys are discussing a lot of the writers, I think all but one of the writers of that call to action were on that Lunch and Learn. And then Chris and Liz do Lunch and Learns, gosh, I don't know, once a month or something. I don't even know how frequent it is, but they're great. And so I think that's also a really good resource to further this conversation. But even if there's only one thing we're doing at home this week, maybe it's we just have a conversation and it doesn't have to be about OCD. Maybe it's about what do we think about this and really allowing room for people to have that conversation. Now, if it's not safe to have that conversation in your family, that's where we get to also look. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably at least within the chosen family or open to that conversation. But if you're a sufferer listening to this and go, there's just no way that I could have that and feel safe, not feel completely rejected or demeaned or, or even fear physical safety, then trying to find your tribe. There's family out there and it may not be a family you're born into, but finding your tribe that can be your family and love you for being you. And you can love them for being them, even if they're annoying sometimes, because let's let's face it, family can be real annoying sometimes, right? <laughs> Just kidding. No, I'm not. I know I'm I'm family too. I annoy the crap out of people in my family. Trust me. So it's fair. I, I take what I get. But yeah, I mean, I think having the safe space to have some conversations. If you're 
best friends, if you're roommates and that's a safe space, like let's have some conversations. Again, not saying that everybody has to agree 100%, but how to be respectful and vulnerable. And that in and of itself may be an exposure. And so if it is, that is another thing where you can say to your therapist, hey, I need to be able to have these conversations. Even if it's just talking about it and we come up with no conclusions or nobody agrees, I need to know that we can at least talk about it. And that, that really puts forward some momentum for us to be more justice oriented and then facilitate and do the work and practice and continue to make ripples and changes and advocacy and policy and calls to action and marches. And all sorts of things, right? So it it does all those things and it can start there. So that's a a thought I've had. But anything else that you would add for our OCD family community? Yeah, I thought that was really beautifully stated. I guess I would just reiterate a point that I made earlier, which is like, listen to your gut, whether you are a person with OCD, a family member or a therapist, and you're working with these presentations and something maybe feels off, feels like this exposure might harm someone else, or I don't feel comfortable doing this exposure in front of all kinds of different people, then we really need to start listening to that more and really humanizing each other. Because again, people are more than just their OCD. Yeah. Um, just pathologize everything. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know, consult. Consult, consult, whether it's with a colleague, with a supervisor, with Dr. Caitlin Pensiani, who said you can email her and she'll help you. Like, that's a pretty generous thing, too. You're like, uh, like, maybe I should lock that back. (laughs) I know, I know. You're like, oh no, Nicole, (laughs) what have I done? Yes, or send me, or or you can also send me, if you go, Nicole at OCD Family Podcast, but if you go to the website, you can we have a submission form, to You can send me those questions because I am happy. This is a series on intersectionality, but if I hope I've made one thing clear, it's that, no, we're highlighting it, and people like to type in keywords and search engine optimizations and algorithms, but this is a continuing conversation that we're going to have, whether we have a series or not. My aim is to always prioritize inclusivity, to be as ethical, to be as learning and adaptive as we can be, because we're better together. And that's that's where we recognize we're not alone. So feel free to send me your questions and I could like group them together and then be like, okay, doc, <laughs> instead of 8,000, well, yeah. I'm being real generous and I'm going to send you 8,000. No, but we can continue to have conversations. So I would super appreciate your time. I hope that you will come back at some point and be a guest with us again. Because if anything else, I've just really enjoyed the conversation. But I think it's going to also be so helpful for people struggling through and trying to understand how can how can we make a difference here. It starts with us having the conversation. Definitely. Yeah. Happy to come back anytime to continue this conversation. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, what a great conversation. I am just super grateful to Dr. Caitlin Pensiati. And for today's intrusive thought segment, my application segment of the show, I have some exciting news because while we were able to hear and expand upon 
Dr. Pinciotti's thoughts and her sharing. She also is running, as I mentioned toward the top of the show, a research study for the LGBTQIA community and with lived experience of OCD to help make your voices heard. So if you're a part of the community, there is a 30-minute confidential online survey that you can take. I'm going to have the link on this episode's blog post over at ocdfamilypodcast.com. Also, I will have links to Dr. Pinciotti's Twitter, where certainly you can find out about this survey over there as well. And the hope is that it will help update and inform OCD theories and practices to be more inclusive of the unique experiences of the LGBTQIA plus community suffering from OCD. So you can be a part of the reformation and the change and informing research to be more inclusive from the theories all the way to the treatment. So that is really, really cool, and I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. Additionally, speaking of research, and I mentioned this briefly, which is like not even close to threading the needle on how impressive Dr. Pensiati is here, but she is also doing a research study on traumatic and stressful life events and understanding the overlap of trauma and OCD. So again, I'm going to put a link to learn more information about this study. And if you're eligible, it is for people 18 years or older, English speaking, and who have experienced at least one traumatic event during their life. But it's really dynamic because its aim is to help us better understand how traumatic and stressful life experiences can impact the development, the course, and the presentation of OCD symptoms. Again, this is an anonymous survey, and it's an opportunity to inform research in the right direction. It takes 30, 45 minutes to complete, unless you're like me, and then you can make a 30-minute <laughs> survey last an hour. But even if you're me, an hour of your time so your voice can be heard. And not only that, but the voices of your fellow sufferers, fellow loved ones, fellow trauma survivors. It's pretty cool. So again, you can go to OCD Family Podcast, this episode's blog post. This is season one, episode 29. 29. That is awesome. Time flies. And to that end, speaking of time, until next time, family. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family, like Dr. Pinciotti and me talking about what justice can be. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.